Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Marty Cooper's a dear friend, and I love sharing dear people with you, but Marty Cooper is a San Francisco-based therapist that specializes in anxiety, depression, and lots of therapists say that, but I send Marty people all the time because he has a lens on depression that is so wise. He will definitely be publishing a book about his ideas once he finishes his dissertation. He's been a therapist for a long, long time. Get ready to geek out on the nervous system and the details of depression that I guarantee you, you will have never, ever heard before in this particular way. And be sure to listen all the way through to the end. His message to all of you listeners for Sidewalk Talk is so beautiful. Thank you, Marty, for being here with us. And I'm so excited to share this dear friend. And I was excited to get to talk with him. It's been a few years. Marty Cooper, therapist in San Francisco. Marty Cooper, it's going to be so hard for me not to want to like be buddies with you in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> a challenge. It's so fun to, um, I don't know, get to have you on, on this platform. You know what just came to mind? Hmm. What just came to mind was you and I sitting in the conference room in the Hobart building in San Francisco playing bad therapist charades. <laughs> <laughs> right that was some good times that was some good times uh yeah i haven't thought about that in a while but <laughs> as therapists we need to let off steam and that was some that was fun that was fun um you know i i you're kind of my um go-to expert when it comes to the nervous system mm-hmm. as it relates to depression mm-hmm and the more that I sit out on the sidewalk, I am so, A, clear how much both of those are ingredients to connection and disconnection. And so I wanted to get your feedback, input, wisdom on what is this thing, depression, first of all, as you formulate it, mm-hmm. and how does connection even have any relationship to this the thing relevance in society. To yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So here's my, uh, here's my take on depression, which is, in contrast, is certainly not uh, a phenomena that is dependent on the nervous system or the human body's chemical system or brain chemical system. I think that, that is a, 
<clears throat> that medicalized view of depression is unhelpful at best uh, and, and deeply wrong uh, at worst. So in contrast to that um, view, how I see depression is as a phenomenon, a cluster of phenomenon, which is triggered by the situation in which um, a human experiences futility, experience of futility, without the ability to grieve. So the central concept that I would contend defines what depression is and what happens with depression is the, is the joining of those. So that would be stated as depression is the phenomena that arises from ungrieved futility. Okay, so that's not a particularly intuitive concept, so I'll break it down for a second. So futility, what's futility? Futility is a situation in which there is a goal and an attachment to that goal, which cannot be realized in the situation or world as it is. So an easy form of that would be um, you know, I, uh, a loved one has passed away, uh, and the the attachment to them as a living being who we can interact with and so forth, everything we're used to, becomes futile. In other words, the attachment itself is no longer uh, real. It is, it, it is, as well as the person who has died. However, if we are able to go through the grief process, which is to say, to let that attachment um, dissolve within our system so that we're no longer attached to a living being, we're attached to hopefully the good memories um, and felt senses of that person, then depression isn't necessary. However, if we're not able to grieve, in other words, we're not able to go through the, uh, the sort of emotional and physical process of that dissolution, then that's the condition in which depression is likely to arise. And so that's, that's a gross example. Subtle examples are like, when we have a philosophy or a certain view of life that comes to be fundamentally contradicted, um, say someone who grew up in a, a simple form of Christianity encounters some of the darkness of the world after having all a bunch of sunshine and light. Um, that's, a, that's a situation in which the attachment to their view of the world uh, dies. It's no longer real in the world and they have to go through a grief process. Um, and a, and a, an example of more the goal side would be, say, you know, a, a goal of advancing in one's career in a certain way that we have a lot of attachment to. Something obstructs it. We, we're an athlete and we become physically harmed. We can't. So, and then that goal and that attachment, the goal becomes, uh, it dies. <clears throat> it's no longer relevant in the world. So, and, but that also can be with depression. Any of those can be either a literal external experience of futility, like actually the athlete cannot perform at level anymore and have to abandon the profession. Uh, so that's a very worldly case. Or we can uh, internally experience that futility. In other words, we can, we can make assumptions about what's possible that render internally an experience of futility, whether or not that reflects the real world of possibility internally we have the experience of futility mm. and therefore it's irrelevant whether it's external or inter it's the experience of futility that is the key point for depression the resolute the uh, the non-arising of depression is if we can grieve that loss mm. 
mm-hmm. the arising of depression is if we can't grieve that loss. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, so secondarily, the phenomenon of depression, right? All the classic symptoms of disturbance of a physical, uh, uh, physical systems, our sleep, our eating, etc. Disturbance of our emotional system, the, the bending towards very negative mood states, the disturbance of our cognitive systems, uh, negative thinking, suicidal thinking. And then in terms of connection, right, this major symptom there is the, uh, is the tendency towards withdrawal from our relationships or from relationships in general, and the tendency to view relationships and relationships as general as either um, threatening, dangerous, or pointless. Okay, so so what the what the DSM what the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual labels as depression, I would say is the is the complex of symptoms that gather around this situation in which there is a loss, there is a futility which can't be grieved. So I think that's a big dump. So I'll stop there. Yeah, I'm taking it mm-hmm. in. Okay. So how does what you're saying right now feel different than what you and I learned in graduate school? Like what mm-hmm. has led you to make this shift and, and come up with this definition? What, was, what, what is traditionally missing in the way mm-hmm. society thinks about def- uh, depression? So the big thing that's missing that I uh, alluded to at the beginning is, um, or the big mistake is to think that depression itself, uh, the dynamics and the phenomenology of it are simply epiphenomenon. They're, They're essentially meaningless occurrences that arise from a derangement in the neurochemical system. Um which has been part of the medical model's view of depression, particularly for the last 30 years, even though it essentially was a, the, the, the serotonin or the, the um, brain chemical deficiencies uh, theory essentially was debunked almost as soon as it came up. But there were a whole complex of forces, especially during the 80s, um, which pushed it to the fore, uh, the pharmaceutical industry being a major one. So that that view which depending on our training our graduate schools was more or less emphasized in mine it was fairly de-emphasized being a humanistic program but it was still there as a bias towards depression being uh meaningless but the neurochemistry being meaningful so you treat the neurochemistry and then the depression goes away i think that's radically wrong-headed um so because what it leaves out is the internal logic and the internal intelligence of depression itself as a, uh, as a regulatory mechanism and as a defense mechanism. Um, the, what we didn't learn in graduate school was one, clearly the wrongness of the medical models view of depression and two, a more precise uh, and um, uh, phenomenological understanding of why depression exists, where it comes from, what its intention is, and why it selects for certain, uh, for certain experiences or for certain symptoms over others. In other words, what, what is the intelligence and logic of depression? 
that's something none of us were trained in in graduate school. Hmm. Right? And it leaves, it leaves us both as clients, as sufferers of depression, as well as clinicians, with at least a very fuzzy model of its healing. And at worst, uh, it leads us into blind alleys and cul-de-sacs. So what is its intelligence? Is it to protect us from that really intense grief? So the, this is the way I think about it. And it draws to some degree from, uh, from evolutionary theories of depression, particularly what's called the rank theory of depression, um, that it's probably best thought of as an energy regulation system. So the logic there is the, the human body-mind only has a certain amount of energy to distribute to different uh, attachments and goals in its, in its uh, life, survival being one of the main ones, but attachment being the other main one. Um, <clears throat> if, we don't, if we don't distribute our energy properly in the survival realm, we'll die. If we don't do it in the social realm, we won't literally die initially, but we'll socially die. In other words, we'll be excluded from this system of attachments that is necessary for our functioning. And in early days, what that meant in early tribal and, and uh, uh, group, uh, uh, early hominid band days, what that would mean is you would get kicked out to be eaten by the lions and the hyenas, literally. Um, so our nervous systems remember what it's like to be kicked out of a group. So both cases are survival. So our, the, you know, the, the ones of us that survived to pass on our genes learned at a neurophysiological uh, uh, level that it's really important how you distribute energy. We grew up in small bands and, uh, in which survival was the primary, um, the primary uh, demand. But survival in, in bands also includes our linkage to the other band members because if we don't, or if we aren't linked, we will be either forgotten about or, or kicked out, and then it's off to the hyenas and the lions. So, um, so our attachments are very important, and the way we distribute energy in those attachments is very important. If we make wrong choices around energy distribution, the consequence of that is death. We have a limited, uh, a limited amount of energy to distribute, and those distributions need to be uh, generative. They need to give us payback on our investment, as it were. So uh, depression is that which arises from a situation of ungrieved futility. Okay, so that depends on our attachment to goals and uh, others. Essentially, essentially, our attachment to people is a kind of goal. I want something from them. I want to be attached to them, so forth. So all of those require energy. Okay, which, so distributing energy towards an attachment, towards a, a professional goal or towards a person is, is not the issue for depression. The problem is what happens when that, that attachment and that distribution of energy doesn't give us anything back. It doesn't give us any energy back um, physically or psychically. So in that situation, depression looks at that and says, okay, look, you're going to pay a bunch of energy towards this goal and you're not going to get anything back. Well, that's no more tenable in a corporation than it is in a particular human. So if that's not attenuated, then you're going to be paying out all this energy, essentially like an open wound. You're going to be bleeding out all this energy, and eventually you're going to die. So depression is this system or this monitoring system that apparently grew up to look for this situation 
Uh, and even that situation isn't the problem. The problem is when the person is not able to accept that there's been a loss and then retract their energy uh, from that attachment, i.e. when they're not able to grieve the attachment that this now is dead, is now is futile. Uh, I get it now. Okay, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Got so, it. So, yeah. So... I love getting geeky with you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in terms that I know are sidewalk talk volunteers. So I'm gonna mm -hmm. repeat back to you in in my sure. street way, Marty, as mm -hmm. you know that I do maybe slightly in a slangy way, but correct mm -hmm. me if I'm getting it wrong. We're trying to we're trying to stay alive, both physically and from a existential place, mm -hmm. and we put a lot of energy into staying alive. But sometimes things that we put energy into don't pan out. But we, because we can't grieve, we just keep psychically putting energy into that unpanned out thing. And that's energy is, is, a va is, a, is a essentially a pit, a vacuum. It's an implosion of, in, of sorts. And that's, is that what leads to depression in your mind? It's that vacuum of energy where there's no return on investment. It's, it's actually not even that. It's the, it's the next, the, at that point, depression is interested. And again, this, this, is a, this is positing that depression is actually an intelligent system. It, it, it is looking for whether that situation of loss and the vacuum energy can be dealt with through grief or is resisted and will not be dealt with. Mm. If it's the former, then its job as an energy monitoring system in service of the survival of the organism, it has no job to do because grief is, will do the job for it. In other words, grief will retract that attachment, will stop that flow of energy towards that goal, that futile goal, mm -hmm. and, will, and will move through the state, you know, everything we know about grief, move through the stages yeah. of grief to a place of acceptance. What's acceptance? Acceptance is, is a retraction of the energy and a recognition that the loss has happened and, mm -hmm. and can be tolerated. So that's acceptance, right? The, the other direction is if we refuse to grieve, to go through that process of, to reach acceptance, there, there is the problem that depression is responding to because there's the danger to our psyche and our system. Well, right? and, yeah. this is so beautiful. I now figure out why, I just figured out why I struggle with depression. Okay. <laughs> Refusal to grieve, huh? Uh, it's not just that. It's my refusal to accept. Yeah. It's my omnipotence that I believe that I could change anything. And mm -hmm. sometimes that's a real benefit in life, but sometimes it's a real bugger. Oh, yeah. Right? I, right? Like to say, I like to say depress uh, depressives are control freaks that are just bad at it. <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I include myself in this. Camp, so I say that quite respectfully. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. So... Um, I had a really good experience of grief the other day, and mm. I'm going to share it with you because I feel like mm -hmm. it'll bring us into a story that'll help this all come alive. Mm -hmm. um, I have this history when people let me down. And just like you'd said, sometimes people literally let me down, or sometimes I'm making an internal assumption that I've been let down. In this case, there was a literal letdown. And my refusal to grieve that which isn't, was not on offer um, led me to 
which ends in anxiety, which often links to depression, where I was bouncing back and forth between it was my fault that this person let me down versus it's their fault that they let me down. And that obsessive thinking going from anger to fear and and using internal family systems, which is kind of the lens that I look through, I'm like, huh there is a firefighter here and a protector really trying to, you know, go banter back and forth to not feel something. Mm-hmm. And then I to went not right, feel something mm-hmm. to not feel something. And mm-hmm. then I went right into the heartache of, Oh, a could link it back to something from a much younger time that was really amplifying the pain because it was ungrieved grief from way back Mm. when, Mm -hmm. but then also feeling it in present tense that I am really sad to lose this relationship because this particular letdown wasn't going to, I knew from my own integral standpoint, wasn't going to be recoverable. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I just cried and had a Mm -hmm. really good, long, sad, no longer caught in, what a jerk, or I'm terrible, but just like, it is so painful when some relationships must end. Mm-hmm. So there's, the, particularly the last thing you said just there, um, and then with the internal family systems work, the, and, and the, the overarching framework you want to hold around connection, um, something that happens in depression is that we fall into a state in which uh, not literally usually, but certainly internally, we feel isolated and alone. Mm. And just there, the last thing you said was, gosh, I just blanked on it, but there's a sense of like internal connectedness open up. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and you realize like the internal relationships of these parts. Mm-hmm. And, then, well, and I, I will say, mm-hmm. you know what I did in that place yeah. of internal connectedness? I also then picked up the phone and called a friend that I knew could sit with me and let mm-hmm. me sit a little longer in that heartache so I wouldn't pop out of it. And we just had a good right cry on the phone together uh-huh yeah yeah well you had the the kind of intuition or wisdom to uh to know that having an external person would help s- stabilize and kind of um reinforce that connectedness you were finding inside and also that the and the qual and you also reflected in your friend uh is the shift you went from inside from a kind of harsh punitive uh, connectedness mm-hmm. to to a kind supportive uh, uh, holding connectedness yep. like this, this hurts without any judgment and so forth. Yep. Right. It's just really, I, I am a walking Petri dish for, for this, this notion here mm-hmm. because for, for years, I think we, we so often in the field of growth take a top down approach where we're trying to think about our experience rather than mm-hmm. experience the energy that you're describing. Right. I mean, it's important mm-hmm. to make these links to these patterns of thought, but what I was able to track, which also then from a motivation standpoint makes me want to do it again, even though it feels weird to say, I want to go back to grief again. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, feeling that grief and having that good cry felt a hell of a lot better than avoiding it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was so much more efficient and fast. Yeah. The thing is, though, something happened. I mean, you, of course, you've been doing tons of work. Yeah, life, for a long, long right, time. Right. So you can bring a lot to the table. But, so the, but the thing that happened for you was that at some point, you were able 
to credibly, it, it felt credible to you to credibly understand that the grief wasn't going to kill you. Yeah. Okay. So at that point, then the grief becomes accessible. But up until that point, your mind is with a confused notion or in, you know, in some cases, grief can be so threatening, especially if one has like a psychotic uh, condition that it's going to be triggered, you know, that it can be actually life-threatening. But for, you know, normal neurotics, uh, it's the fear that we can't go through that process of loss, i.e. grief, Mm -hmm. without being destroyed. That's what prevents primarily our access to grief. And then the movement through the acceptance, the allowance of the feelings and the physical states, and the arrival at that uh, release. But, yeah. it, but if you can't find that sense of safety with that process, you will tighten up. And that's when depression kind of perks up and is summoned. I love that phrase, you will tighten up, because mm-hmm. I think it's so simple, but it's a great cue for all of us when we're perhaps not giving ourselves the safety internal relatedness as you were talking about to, to feel into that grief. I want to, mm-hmm. if I may, I want to take us into the connection piece on this. Sure. The place that I'd love to hear from you on is I often wonder a- about causality, right? Um, or, or order of operations, if you will. Mm-hmm. We have a pretty, we have a lot, of, the, the world is kind of a clusterfuck right now externally, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot to, gr- be, that, to be grieving. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and most, more specifically, there is a real sense of social isolation. This piece around social attachments is increasingly missing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I both, I, I think of, of two things. Um, is it the external that causes the depression or is it, well, I guess I, you already answered the question though. It's, it's our sense of futility about not being able to control the external. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So does that, does that mean then that if I'm not getting enough social connection, I just need to grieve that I'm not getting it and I'll be fine? No, no. It's like saying if I don't have access to good protein, I just need to, uh, grieve the absence of good protein and then my body will be fine my mind will i'll be better positioned internally mentally psychically but our bought my body will still be uh weak and pale mm. so it's the thing with the depre- thing with depression it, it occupies this very intriguing place between um between quote reality external reality and subjective reality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh so if i'm not getting connection uh this the actual the effective starting place of reaching out for obtaining those connections is an acceptance of the fact and the suck of not having those connections okay but but that's the opening then to take action because then you can tolerate whatever the rejection or the pain that is there around connection um so Although I would strenuously argue that depression is not an externally derived situation. It's a, it's a problem with interpretation and it's a problem with our internal resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, the external world exists and it impacts us and it has resources that we need, even though we can be accepting of it, their absence, uh, we still need them. And the acceptance of the absence allows us to actually more skillfully 
go about obtaining what's missing mm. um, than if we're not accepting. So but, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm having such a good time geeking out with you. It feels like, mm-hmm. old, it feels like old days. It's been too long. <laughs> um, you know, talking to you is like what I used to do in college. I didn't read any of the material. I would just buddy up with a really smart partner like you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and pick their brains and like, okay, so who said that? Mm-hmm. Pick down the little citation. I just, yeah, you're, uh, I'm really, it's how I learn. I learn in connection. Mm-hmm. So that brings us back to, you know, we, we sit out on sidewalks and mm-hmm. people will come up and, and say, I'm depressed. I mean, we've literally had people come up and say that they're depressed. Mm-hmm. And um, what is your thought you know, we have a stance of compassion happening between equals. So we're not there as therapists. Mm-hmm. We're there as humans. And the belief is that there is um, potentially that, you know, that internal relationship that you noticed I had had, that by mm-hmm. me sort of being open to this person that's being depressed without sort of implying that there's some big problem, mm-hmm. um, that they might be able to borrow some of that functioning inside for them. But mm-hmm. I could be totally wrong about that. Like. What is meaningful or useful about connection to somebody who is already in the throes of depression, whether it's interpretive or literal? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so one way to think about it maybe is like uh, we're, ne- we're never, oh, here's a more geekiness, we're never in an objective real- reality. Right. We're always participating in, in constructing uh, the reality. And you can check this by like closing your eyes and think about the world. Okay. Right. When you, th- when we think about the world, we're not viewing it. We're not hearing it. We're not uh, directly interacting with it and getting new information through that interaction. We are looking at the gestalt, uh, the synthetic model of what, how we interpret the world. And that's really important because the, the world can be full of possibility. It can be full of possibility for connection. It can be full of, yeah, there's some, some not kind people out there, but mostly people want to connect and want to love you and want to get, you know, that can be our world or uh, the world can be made up of danger. It can be made up of rejection. It can be made up of, of a lack of possibility for connection. It can be dim and gray. Um, and, uh, uh, and we can check that out. We can actually do this little exercise to analyze what the world looks like to us. And so from those two descriptions, obviously depression is the latter one. It creates a sense of the world, which is dim, dark, grim, and with, especially without potential. Right. Um, so what are we doing if we're sitting down with someone who's who on the sidewalk who says they're depressed? Okay, so their world, if they're saying they're depressed, their world, dim, gray, uh, and full of imposs- or, uh, absent, void of possibility. So they're sitting down with this other human who they may hope a little bit or they may not hope can help them. But within their world, you are ba- initially, you are basically irrelevant. Either you're dangerous or you're just, uh, you're just inaccessible. Like I might, it might help. I might hope you can help me, but pff, I don't think so. Cause everything in me says, says the world doesn't have any possibility for hope or help. So you sit down there, you start talking, uh, I start talking and this other person sitting across, this stranger, uh, starts empathizing. 
starts offering little bits of understanding and normalizing and appreciation. And although in, in my internal world, uh, the, the bubble around me is full of grayness and grimness and lack of possibility, here's this person who seems to be enacting and demonstrating these qualities that don't exist in my depressed world. And <clears throat> this, the value of that is not that it, of course, resolves whatever literal issues we were struggling with, but that here's an actual lived experience of the possibility that exists in the world outside of my dim and contracted and depressed view of it. And, and that's meaningful because it's not just academic, but I can see your smile, I can see your kind eyes, I can experience the results of those in my body a little bit, and those are all confirmatory that although I'm feeling this sense of a depressed world, apparently that's not the whole story. Apparently there's possibility outside of what depression keeps telling me because I'm feeling it. I can see it. I can, I can uh, sense it in my body from this other, this stranger who's actually being kind, which is not, the, not what depression is good at, being kind. And so that then uh, adds a little bit of like counterspin to the momentum of depression. Um, and that has the opportunity of adding a little hope or adding or reminding the person that, hey, maybe actually the world isn't as grim as I think. Um, and so it creates a kind of counter depressive effect just by sitting there, just by experiencing connection and experiencing a voice outside of your own head who exhibits kindness and lack of judgment rather than what's going on in your own mind. I love that. Haven't you mm. ever been on the receiving end of that kind of kindness that challenged your mind out of a dark place? Absolutely. A thousand times. Yeah. Yeah. We would, we would be dead if it wasn't, I mean, literally we would all be dead, especially in depressives. If we weren't, um, if that didn't exist, if that possibility didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. The people who aren't able to experience that tragically do die. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, could, yeah. you, you mm -hmm. actually motivate. I feel motivated by this, mm -hmm. this last piece that you just shared. Mm -hmm. Because I think about what's happening socially and politically and environmentally all across the world. And here... And, and just how the news pumps out sort of the bad news of the day, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, it made me a little more excited that, yeah, I, I, my, we set intentions whenever we sit down on the sidewalk. And, and for the last six months, the only intention I ever said is, I just want to be a fireball of love on this sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And I, I, mm. I think that that's what we do, is that we're not, I, that there's... I, you made me realize there's meaning in being a fireball of love out there on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, tremendous and tremendous import too, because there's a, there's a, uh, there's a magnifying effect that the depression, the problem, big problem with depression is it creates uh, a, a, um, a kind of holographic or like a virtual reality of grimness mm. in which the potential for love and connection are basically turned down to zero. Mm -hmm. So um, as, as big as that can feel, 
it's, it tries to pretend that the whole world simply doesn't have the possibility for love. And as we know from uh, like scientific and statistical studies, right, we can have a huge body of information and data, but if there's one data point which credibly and irrefutably contradicts that whole huge set of data, that, that whole theory will collapse around that one data point. And it'd be nice if depression acted that, that, uh, like that. But you being a fireball of love on the uh, sidewalk and offering that to people for the, for the chance for them to feel it, right? It's not enough to think it, to actually feel it there body to body. That is one data point, which is much, as much data as depression is throwing at them, quote unquote data is thrown at them. That one point proves credibly and in an embodied way that the world actually has the potential for love, even from a stranger. And that is very corrosive to the power of depression. It doesn't resolve it. There needs to be a number of those points, but it is a power refuta- powerful refutation of the comprehensive assertion that depression makes, which is that life is grim and without potential. Beautiful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I know you're on retreat right now and that you have to go track down the folks that are, what do you call it when you're getting your, your dissertation the, my, people? My, co- my, my committee members. Your committee members. That's what you call yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and are you still writing a book on depression? I am going to write my dissertation and then probably elaborate that into a book. Okay. Because I know we talked mm-hmm. about that a few years ago. I didn't know mm-hmm. if you were already. We'll have you back on when you're ready to promote your book. How's that? Cool. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, we have a tradition on how we close our dialogue here. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fun. I think you'll enjoy it. It's very quick. Mm-hmm. I get out of the way and turn over the mic to you mm-hmm. to speak directly to. So this podcast gets emailed out directly to all 7,500 Sidewalk Talk volunteers. Mm-hmm. And I think they listen to the whole podcast now just because they like to hear this last bit <laughs> that you're ready for. <laughs> okay. But what wish or words of wisdom would you speak directly to them? Mm. The work you're doing has an effect on the world which is objective but which you can never know specifically. So as you're doing your work on the sidewalk, kind of the, the grungy street level, literally reality of your work, hold in your hearts and minds the faith and trust that what you're doing is not only meaningful, but every interaction you have that communicates love and hope has a uh, multiplying effect in the people you're working with, both as something that multiplies within their systems and something that multiplies in literally every interaction they have from a, a slightly or not so slightly changed view of themselves and view of the world. So every, all, whatever work you do to situate yourself as a loving, receptive being there on the sidewalk with all these strangers is having a multiplying effect in them and in every interaction they have. And so your work is deeply meaningful and deeply important and deeply affecting of the world at this personal level 
and then at more complicated levels that you probably will never be able to know. Hmm. 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 I love you, sweet friend. I miss you. <laughs> I love you too. I'm glad you're doing this. This is a great project. Yeah. yeah. All right. You go and okay. enjoy your retreat and I'll have Thank a you. I'll have a nice sleep now. Okay. Bye Marty. Bon but bye bye. <laughs> Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.